pray together. Father, what, what a song to lead us into prayer. That is, we, we consider what, what we've just sung, that there is a Savior who's worthy of following. That Jesus, you're a God worthy of giving our whole lives to, of resting all of our hopes on, of trusting with everything. And yet, God, even in that triumphant moment of, of singing those words and believing them, at some level we have to say, help our unbelief. Because we feel at a very deep level that all creation really is groaning. And our hearts and our minds and our bodies are groaning from the effects of sin. We think about, God, even in our own country, last night, yesterday, another mass shooting. Another ten people senselessly dead and three injured. And we almost, if we're honest, can become numb to seeing another news story like that. Another senseless tragedy, our hearts start to get calloused. And we start to forget that creation is groaning. That the effects and consequences of sin in this world are real. But God, it's not just distant. It's also very close and personal. So many of us in this room right now walk in here with burdens that we don't know how to carry, that we don't know if we can go one more day walking under the weight of what we're coming in here with. Maybe for some of us, the weight of depression, the weight of anxiety, the weight of fear, it feels crushing. Jesus, we need your burden, which is light, and a yoke that is easy, a Savior who is worthy of following. So many of us in this room are dealing with horrible illness, cancer in our bodies, sickness in all parts of us, maybe some things that doctors can't even tell us what it is. We're groaning. And we pray, even, even as we prayed at the beginning of this service, Jesus, would you come for us? Would you come quickly? He who testifies to these things says he is coming soon. Jesus, we can't wait. Would you help us to believe with all our hearts and souls and minds that you coming for us is better than anything we could experience on this earth? Because our hearts are a little bit resistant to that. We want to experience maybe a little bit more on this earth. Give us a fresh perspective of the glory of heaven, of being face-to-face with our Savior and all that it means forever. And as we journey towards that day, even as we open your word, God, now, would you feed us just whatever we need to keep us going. We feel crushed. We feel burdened. We feel like we can't take one more step. But God, you are faithful. And one of the ways you keep us going in this world and you keep us hopeful and you keep us going is through your word. And so would you feed us now? Give us whatever we need. Do we need encouragement, rebuke? Do we need the spirit to come and search and know us and reveal sin in us? Do we need hope? God, you know. And so meet us and feed us through your word. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 32. We'll be spending our time together in Psalm 32. You're going to want to keep that open in front of you, whether you have it on a phone or a device or a Bible in the pew in front of you. Let's read Psalm 32 together and we'll refer back to it as we walk through it and see what God has for us. 
It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must, must be curbed and with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. I have a um, secret, maybe it's not so secret, I don't, it's not a guilty pleasure, it's just a, I like it, uh, of true crime, TV shows, movies, books, maybe you're with me in this. We just finished watching Candy on Hulu, which I can't totally recommend, but it was good, uh, about a, a real true killer, maybe some of you remember that, around 1980, Candy Montgomery. Uh, but I just love these, I love these stories. Like, I can't get enough. Like, I have to know what's going to happen. What's the verdict of the jury? Or are they going to find the person? Or what really went down? Like, I love how that all plays out, which is actually very ironic. Because I think maybe my greatest fear in life is that the police are after me for something they thought I committed, but I actually didn't commit, and I'll end up in jail for something I didn't do. Anybody else have that fear? I don't I don't know what that is in me that just makes me like, and so I watch these shows and I think, man, isn't it, it's so excruciating, the whole thing to watch. But for me, the worst part is they've committed the crime, only they know, and now they're covering up their tracks and they're on the run and they're lying to everybody and they're always wondering, the detective's going to find me. And I'm like, I don't, just, I want the show to end, just like find them. I want this to be over. Like the angst that I feel the whole time as they're waiting, you know, we kind of saw that in Alabama with that couple that ran... Uh, from prison, like just waiting for the consequences of what they've done to catch up with them. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, uh, used to tell a story. I highly doubt it's true, actually, but it's a good story. makes the point. Uh, He used to tell a story that he said um, he thought that everybody, by the time they were 40 years old, had enough skeletons in their closet that they were trying to keep hidden from the whole world. They like Everybody has something they're trying to keep hidden. And so they found someone, one of their closest friends, that they deemed to be the most godly, the most upright, uh, the best standing citizen to test out this theory. And they sent him a telegram that said, all is discovered, flee at once. And they said he packed his bags and they never saw him again. (laughs) Again, is that true? Probably not. But isn't it at some level true? Don't we all feel like, man, if I was really seen, if I was really found out, if I was really known, if my whole life was totally on display, if I was discovered, it would be my end. 
We all kind of live life like a criminal who's committed some act with this guilt that hangs over us, with this need to be punished. This, uh, this, we don't measure up. We know it. And so we're all just waiting to kind of be discovered, all kind of waiting for our sin to be found out with varying levels and senses of guilt. Maybe for you, that's something really specific that happened in your past. One thing you did, one thing you can never get over, you can never take back, you've dealt with the consequences, you've confessed it, you've done everything you ever can, but it still hangs over you. It still goes with you. It still follows you. The weight of the guilt of it still weighs on your soul. Or maybe it's just more general. All of us, according to this psalm, at some general baseline level, carry this guilt, this sense that we're a fraud, this sense that our sin is going to catch up with us. I think Andy talked about this a few weeks ago, but Francis Schaeffer used to give this great illustration saying, uh, if, when babies were born, if they put this microphone on them to follow them around for their whole lives... And it only recorded when you said things like, can you believe they did blank? Or everybody knows that you're supposed to blank. This is something that everybody should do. If it only recorded those things that you said, and then when you stood before God, he didn't hold you against the test of his own law. He just held you against the test of those things that you said. Would you pass or fail? You would fail, right? We can't even live up to our own standards. We know. We know. We're frauds just waiting to be found out. We all carry this guilt around with us. It nags us that we don't measure up. And so here's what this psalm teaches us. If you wanted to boil it down into just one kind of thought, this psalm teaches us this idea. It's impossible It's impossible to really live the kind of life you want to live until you know your sin has been dealt with. And I don't just mean on an intellectual level, like you could tell me that your sin has been dealt with by Jesus. I mean practically, day to day, in your everyday life, you know and believe with every fiber of your being that your sin, that that guilt has been dealt with. If we don't know that, we can't live the blessed life, the fulfilled life, the kind of life that we all really want to live. And so that's what this psalm is all about. And to kind of hammer that home for us, it first of all gives us these four words that highlight for us what the nature of sin is. Four different words that describe for us what sin is. Look back at verse one. We're just gonna look at two of them together. First of all, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is a word that means rebellious self-assertion. Here would be the mantra of transgression. Nobody tells me what to do. If you put a rule in place, I'm just gonna break it because I'm the authority, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. So I was thinking about this this week and you know what I thought of? I thought back to when I was in high school and I got my first car and this is before seatbelt sensors were invented and it was the coolest thing ever not to wear your seatbelt. I don't know why. We just didn't wear our seatbelts. Like your mom would watch you put your seatbelt on as soon as you're out of the driveway. You take the seatbelt off and you're like, now I'm cool, check me out. What's the deal with that? I didn't believe the statistics about seatbelt safety. No. What's it really come down to? It's a rule and I'm just gonna break it. That's what transgression comes for us. We just break God's law because he put it into place. We wanna assert our own authority. The second Hebrew word in verse one is blessed is the one whose sin 
is covered. It's just a word translated as sin that simply means to go off the path, to go off the path. Jen and I were um, hiking in San Francisco, kind of on the, the coast. It's very rocky, like coast right there. We're hiking on, on there. And every once in a while, there would be a trail off the side to the main trail. And there would be a sign that said, this trail is closed. And it, it, I promise it said this. Uh, people have fallen and died here. It's like, how can we make this so specific that people will believe us? And then it had a picture of a guy falling off a cliff and dying. Okay? So we're sitting there looking at it. It's like, oh, it's an interesting sign. I promise you, this guy comes up behind us, dips under the rope, and goes down the path. And I'm like, he probably died. <laughs> For all we know, he's dead. What, what is that in us? Here's what that looks like spiritually, that God says, hey, I know the best path for you to walk. I made the world. I made you. I know how life works best. And we say, nobody knows what's best for me except for me. I see the warning signs. I'm going to take the path that I want to take. Isn't that a, just a picture of the cultural uh, mantra right now? I'm my own. I know what's best for me, and no one else can tell me. But we all have that in our hearts, Right? And then the psalm goes on. We won't look at these two words, but it talks about the iniquity of sin and the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the point. David's trying to give us a picture of why we feel like we don't measure up, why we have that nagging guilt. And he wants us to know until that sin is dealt with, we'll never have the kind of life that we want to have. And so what happens is we end up feeling exposed. Look back at verse one and verse five. David uses this word twice. He says, we know that we need to be covered. We know we need to be covered. If you think back to Genesis chapter three, when the first sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, they sin, and what immediately happens? They realize they're naked, and they cover themselves. They feel the shame of their sin and their immediate response is, I know I need to be covered. I know I need to cover up the shame and the guilt of all that I did. I know I need to do that. And that still lingers in our hearts. We know that we need to be covered. And there's really only two options. It's what this whole Psalm is about. There's really only two ways to be covered. Either you cover yourself or you let God cover you. We cover ourselves or we let God cover us. So let's look at those one at a time. First, we cover ourselves. What does it mean to cover ourselves? There's a lot of ways that we can do this. The first way is we can cover ourselves by shifting the blame. We can cover ourselves by shifting the blame. So here, I'm gonna give you four examples of how we cover ourselves. And here's what has to happen here. You have to do the hard work in your own heart to go, is this me? Is this how I'm trying to deal with my own sin? So the first one is we shift the blame. You know, you think back, Adam also gave us a, the, the forerunner for this too. He uh, sins and God comes and he's like, what did you do? And he says, it wasn't me, this woman that you gave me. You see what he's doing? I sinned, but two people are at fault and neither one of them is me. This woman, and it was your fault too, by the way, God. Shifting the blame. Just trying to pass it on to anyone else so to cover yourself to say, it couldn't be my fault. For you, it might sound like this. I only sin because I've been sinned against. Stuff that's happened in my past, stuff that people has done to me, I only sin because I've been sinned against. It might sound like no one appreciates me. I don't get paid what I'm worth. 
my husband doesn't appreciate me, my wife doesn't appreciate me, my, my kids never thanked me for all that I did. I deserve, I deserve this. It might sound like if my coworkers weren't so lazy or if my spouse was more sexually responsive, I wouldn't have to sin. This wouldn't be happening. Just shift the blame. Just put it on someone else. Second way that we cover ourselves, we cover ourselves by keeping our sin hidden. This is what David does. We read this this week in our journey through scripture, right? That David just thinks, I've sinned. How can I cover this? Oh, I'm just gonna keep it hidden. I'm just gonna bury it. I'm just gonna keep it away from sight, not deal with it to pretend it doesn't exist. Thirdly, we cover ourselves by minimizing our sin. We minimize our sin. So we play this game. We say, all right, um, here's sin that is, is serious, and here's sin that's not serious. Uh, so yes, I lie sometimes. Yes, I gossip. Yes, I'm not thankful. Yes, I'm bitter. Yes, I'm not gentle. But I avoid X, Y, and Z. And so this isn't really that big of a deal. So I'm covered. I'm good. I don't commit these sins. I just do these less serious things. And then lastly, and maybe most prevalently, we cover ourselves by dealing with other people's sins. This would be me. So here's how this plays out. We know we have this nagging guilt, this weight of sin on us, but the way we cover ourselves is just to pick everyone else apart. Just to say, can you believe they did that? It's so frustrating, they always do this. Can you believe it? Isn't that awful? And we cover ourselves and we feel better about ourselves. All the while we know, if anybody ran a fine tooth comb through our lives, if all was known about us, not just what could be known, not to mention the things that have gone through our minds already this morning, the desires that we've already conjured up, the things that we've already thought about doing or thought about saying, if anyone knew all of those things, we'd be found out, right? Because we know. None of this works. We can try to cover ourselves in all of these different ways, but none of it's going to work. None of it's really going to deal with our sin. Deep down, we know it, which is why so few of us have the kind of lives we really want. David realizes this too. Look back at verses three and four. I love this picture. David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your heavy hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David realizes, I've been trying to cover my sin, but God isn't gonna let me do it. His hand is heavy upon me. He's gonna make me suffer and remember and walk through it again and again and bring it to mind and my body feels the effects and my mind feels the effects and I'm suffering in every way because there's a God who won't let me cover my sin because he knows it doesn't work. And maybe you just need to stop here. Is that you? Is there something in your past that you've just tried to cover over? And you walk with it every day and the heavy but gracious hand of God is weighty upon you. Friends, uncover it. Expose it to God. Let him cover it. It won't work. I've told you this story before, but it just so perfectly illustrates this, so I gotta tell it again. Uh, one time on the high school ski trip, we had a girl who was... Um, 
learning to ski. She was on the bunny slopes. Safest place on the mountain, right? Apparently not. Uh, I got a call. You know, as the chaperone, you get to ski for in like three-minute segments until something goes wrong and they call you to come figure out what goes wrong. And usually it's no big deal. This time I showed up and our poor girl on the bunny slope was on the snow with a puddle of blood all around her. And what had happened is she just somehow fell over on the bunny slope, not really sure how. Uh, and the, the side of your skis is incredibly sharp. So it cut right down to the bone, right through her leg. But she was laughing when I came up because the ski patrol guy was like flirting with her, trying to keep her thoughts off of what was actually happening. And he had wrapped her legs so tight that, that she could not feel anything, basically. So she thought she was good. So we get in the car and we go to the... Um, hospital in West Virginia, which is half hospital, half vet, right? So there's animals and people <laughs> in the waiting room with you. And they do the animals first and then the people when they're signed. Sorry if you're from West Virginia. I know there's some. That was just a joke. So we get in there and, and like four different people would come see us. Like the check-in person would be like, let, let me see the cut. They're trying to assess the situation. And as soon as they unwrapped it, she screamed in pain, right? And then they'd wrap it back up and she felt fine. And then like a nurse would come in and they'd unwrap it and she would scream in pain and they'd wrap it back up and she would feel fine. Then the doctor came in and the doctor, this is not a joke. It's always dangerous to tell jokes and stories because then you think I'm joking about something else. This is not a joke. She took her, she unwrapped it and took her ungloved hand and reached into the cut. She's like, I just got to figure out if there's anything in here. And she's digging around. She's like small talking with me. And this girl is excruciatingly screaming her head off, right? Here's the point of the whole story. All that girl wanted to do was to keep that wound covered up. It felt better. But here's what the doctor knew, even though she didn't wear gloves. Uh, <laughs> and you know. If we don't deal with this wound, if we don't uncover it so we can treat it, eventually infection's gonna happen in your body, it's gonna spread, and it gets really serious really quickly. We have to deal with the cut, even though it feels painful now. And that's what God does with us. He is going to expose our sin to deal with it, not to hurt us, but to heal us, because he knows the ultimate consequences of sin. And so his hand is gonna be heavy upon us to uncover our sin so that he can cover us. The second way we can deal with our sin is that God covers us. Look back at verse one. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This word covered means to hide something from sight. So you think back to Genesis chapter three. What happens? Adam and Eve sin, they cover themselves up with fig leaves and then God comes looking for them, which I think is always a hilarious thing to picture. Like God who created them, they're covered up with fig leaves. He's like, where are you? It's like when my three-year-old, we play hide and seek, and she hides like in the middle of the room on the floor. And I'm like, I can't find you. Where are you? Oh, you know, that whole game. I picture God like that. But this is a crucial moment, right? What happens when we sin and we try to cover ourselves up and God comes to find us? What happens? Does he shame us? Does he beat us over the head with it? Does he leave us on our own to figure it out? No, what does he do with Adam and Eve? He finds an animal, he kills it, drains the blood, takes the skin, makes garments, and covers them. He says, take off all that silliness that you were trying to cover yourself with. Only I can cover you. Only I can really deal with your sin. A foreshadowing of the Lamb of God whose blood would be spilled for us on the cross so that we could be covered with his righteousness. 
This is what God does in Genesis chapter three for Adam and Eve, and it's what he does for us. The heart of God is not to crush us, but to cover us. Didn't we, we saw this play out so incredibly this week. You know this story, but just try to, just try to think like with fresh eyes to what David did, what we read in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, what happened in that scene. I mean, guys, this is unbelievable. This is the king of Israel who sees a woman that he wants and takes her, commits adultery with her, arguably rapes her. Then he tries to cover it up to have her husband come back to get her pregnant so that he, he doesn't look like he did it. That guy's too honorable to do it. So he sends him back and murders him basically at the front line of battle. And he thinks he's gotten away with it, right? Nobody knows. He's the king. He's got a lot of power. He can cover up with it, cover it up. Then Nathan comes to him. Look at 2 Samuel 12, 13. Nathan confronts him for his sin, and David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put your sin away. Ha! What? Like adultery, rape, murder, lying, devastating consequences for the whole nation? David just says, I confess my sin to you, and, God, and Nathan says, And God covers it. Isn't the gospel incredible? Do you believe that? Don't over-fictionalize or fictionalize at all the stories of scripture. This is a real man, real sins, real consequences, real people, real blood spilled, real families ripped apart, a real nation with devastating consequences from this moment. David confesses and God says, it's forgiven. I'll cover it. I'll take care of it. But how does that happen? How does that happen that sin can be confessed, sin can be forgiven automatically, just like that? We have to keep going. God covers us, point three, and we'll finish here. God covers us and he doesn't count against us. God covers us and he doesn't count against us. Verse two, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's that time of year again, I don't know if you have this recurring dream, but I have this recurring dream about this time of year uh, where I'm in college and I've been in a class and I didn't know I was in the class until the week of the exam. Has anybody ever had that dream before? And if I don't pass the class, I, I don't graduate. That is a terrible dream. And so you're trying to figure out what to do. Like, do I cheat? Do I like cram? Do I tell the professor what happened? Like, what do you do? This is all in dream world. So I don't know what, how that actually plays out. That's a terrible, terrible circumstance. On the flip side of that, did you ever have one of those teachers or professors that everybody bombed the test so bad that you walk in after the exam and they say, hey guys, this went so poorly. Here's what I've decided to do. We're not gonna count this test towards the final grade. Have you ever had that happen? I mean, the crowd erupts, right? Like no one is more popular on the face of the earth than that professor in that moment who says, I'm not gonna count it against you. This is a picture of what God's saying to us in this passage, that he's not gonna count our sin against us. He's not gonna credit it to our account. But how can he do that? How can he do that? Look at what it says. It doesn't say that God doesn't count his sin. It says that he doesn't count his sin against him because he counts it against someone else. The sin still has to be paid for. 
It makes me think of, um, it makes me think of your junk closet. I've never been to most of your houses, but I know you have a junk closet. Everyone has a junk closet, right? Your friends are about to come over and you're like, we've got 10 minutes, everything in the junk closet. The Twinkie under the couch, like the dog treats, the clothes, everything, throw it in the closet and pray no one opens it. We all have one of those, right? Is that what God is doing with our sin? No, no, right? It, he couldn't be holy. He couldn't be just and just throw our sin in a junk closet. No, he has to count it somewhere. It has to be paid for somewhere and it's paid for on the cross. This is why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is such a key verse. Not faithful and merciful, not faithful and kind, not faithful and gracious. No, when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us because he's not gonna make two payments on one debt. That sin that you confess has already been paid for. It's already been counted against Christ. And so he's faithful and just to forgive us when we confess to him. I think very quickly, let's do this. Just three very practical things that we have to do if we're gonna start letting God cover us through confession. The first one is we have to own our sin. We have to own our sin. Verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Four times David uses the word my. When he goes to God at confession, he says, my sin, my iniquity, my fault. Confession only starts when we stop covering ourselves, when we stop blaming, when we stop minimizing, when we start, when we start just confessing and owning. We have to own our sin. Secondly, we have to hate our sin. We have to hate our sin. This is, again, where you're gonna have to do the hard work of figuring this out, but we have to discern in our own hearts. Do I hate my sin or do I hate the consequences of sin? Because there's a difference. If you just hate the consequences of sin, you'll confess when things get messy, but you won't actually change because you don't actually hate the sin. You just hate the results. You know, in uh, verse nine, it says, don't be like a horse or a mule, which is generally sound advice. Don't be like a horse or a mule. But what, what, is, what in the world is that talking about? Uh, I don't know if you watched the Kentucky Derby, um, I watched the replay because you never know when that thing's gonna start. There's like nine hours of pregame. I don't know what's going on. So like the race is 10 seconds long. I'll just watch it later. So I watched it later, which was awesome. So I got to watch the overhead view of Rich Strike coming from behind, you know, if you saw this. And it was amazing to watch him come from the back and like maneuver around all those horses to the point the announcer didn't even see it coming. He's like focused on the front runners and this horse just comes and you're all looking at me like you didn't watch this. I really hope you did. This is not gonna land. Uh, and he just comes. And I was watching that. I was thinking, how do you get a horse to move like that? Well, you get a horse to move like that by kicking it, by whipping it, by pulling it, by hurting it. And the horse doesn't go, I really wanna win this race. I really wanna turn left. You know what the horse says? I am so sick of getting kicked. I'll turn left if you'll just stop digging your heel into me. God says, don't be like that. Don't be like the horse or mule that just hates the consequences of your sin. Learn to hate your sin. How do you do that? We don't have time to get into this, but there's this word, this word confess. It has this idea of to see it from the same perspective. 
That's what, it, that's what that word is communicating if you break it down, to see it from the same perspective. And here's what it's saying. You learn to hate your sin. The only way you're gonna do that is if you start to see your sin from God's perspective. If you can step back and say, what would it be like to be a creator who made a person and gave them the best way to live life and that person just said, eh, I'm gonna do what I feel like. I'm gonna walk under the rope and take my own path. What would it be like to show someone mercy and forgiveness and grace over and over and over again, only to have that person break their promises to you over and over and over again? The only way we start to hate our sin is to see it from God's perspective. That's why David says later in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. I mean, he sinned against Uriah, like the dude's dead, right? He sinned against Bathsheba, but it all pales in comparison to the seriousness of sinning against the holy God. He sees it from his perspective. And then lastly, we have to remember the whole point. We have to remember the whole point. I can still remember being a college student and going to a conference and listening to John Piper talk about this and him asking, who cares about forgiveness? And I remember thinking, I I care about forgiveness. That seems like a pretty big deal. But his point was this. What's the whole point? Who really cares about forgiveness? You might say, I care about forgiveness because I don't want to go to hell or I don't want to be a guilty person, and that would be true and good, but it's not the whole picture, right? What's the ultimate point of forgiveness? Uh, If you're married, imagine this scenario. If you're not married, just imagine that you are married. It'll be easy for you to get into this situation. You get into a huge fight with your spouse, and... um, you're, you're just at odds. You can barely look at each other when you walk down the hall. You avoid going in the same room. You only communicate about things that have to be communicated about. Has anyone ever experienced this before? And then finally, your heart softens, and you think, I've got, I've got to, we got to deal with this. We got to figure it out. So you go, and you say, hey, I, I really blew it. I'm so sorry. What do you want in that moment? Do you want your spouse just to say, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. Kind of, but what you really want, right? What you really want is for them to smile and soften and their countenance to change and hug you and say, I'm sorry too. What do you really want in forgiveness? You want the relationship back. You want the person back. Who cares about forgiveness and lets it gets us God back? Forgiveness is just getting something out of the way so we can have God back, so relationship with him can be restored. And you won't care about confession until you care about the right thing, which is getting relationship with God back. I wanna end reading you this quote from Charles Spurgeon. This will be the last thing we do. And he talks about how David here is really a, um, a forerunner of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son story, just to summarize very quickly, the prodigal son leaves, he takes all his father's possessions, he commits all this sin, and then he finally decides, I'm gonna go back, but I know that I know I've blown the whole son thing. Maybe, God, maybe my father, who represents God, will just allow me back in the house as a servant. Maybe he can tolerate me at that level. And the father, right, sees his son coming before he can get one sentence of confession out of his mouth, runs and embraces him and starts to kiss him. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says and apply this to your life, the whole point of forgiveness. He said, there stood stood his son ready to confess his sin. Therefore did his father kiss him all the more. 
The father's heart is overflowing with gladness. He cannot restrain his delight. Let me try to describe the scene. The father has kissed the son and bids him to come sit down. Then he comes in front of him and looks at him and feels so happy that he says, I must give you another kiss. Then he walks away for a minute. And he's back again before long saying to himself, oh, I must give you another kiss. He gives him another for he is so happy. His heart beats fast. He feels very joyful. The old man would be like, would like the music to strike up. He wants to be at dancing, but meanwhile, he satisfies himself by a repeated look for his long lost child. Oh, I believe that God looks at the sinner and looks at him again and keeps on looking at him, all the while delighting in the very sight of him when he is truly repentant and comes back to his father's house. Brothers and sisters, here's the beauty of forgiveness. When we confess, it's not that God just isn't against us anymore. He's for us. He loves us. He delights in us. Not as forgiven servants, but as loved sons and daughters. Let me pray. Father, we, um, we want to be people who are sensitive to sin in our lives. And so whatever we need to do with you right now, if there's sin that needs to be confessed, bring it to mind and give us the sensitivity of heart to confess it. If there's things that we have confessed, God, and we still just can't let them go, they still hang over us, would you assure us of the gospel that Jesus has paid our debts, that he covers us and our sin is not counted against us? And above all, God, would you remind us that the point of confession, the point of forgiveness, the point of bringing our sin to you is to get you back, to have relationship with you, to walk with you, to love you, all the benefits of you being a father who loves us and cares for us. And so come, Spirit, and minister to us. Bring to mind what we need. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.